is sponsored by the Professional Association of Canine Trainers, affectionately known as PACT. On Sunday the 16th of October, PACT are hosting the Connecting Communities Conference. It's at the University of Winchester and there is an amazing lineup of speakers. The conference is in person so you get to meet real people in the world. It's also accessible. The talks are going to be short, snappy and interactive. There'll be lunch and wine, stands to look at and activities throughout the day. It's going to be a great day for all dog enthusiasts and you don't have to be a packed member to come. You can secure your place for just 20 quid. Find out more information on the Facebook page or on the website www.packed-dogs.com. Welcome to the award-winning Canine Hoopers World podcast. Everyone's invited. <laughs> Hello, everybody, and welcome to season three, episode seventeen of Canine Hoopers World the podcast. Now we're back stateside for this episode, and this lady is a trainer and author and all-round awesome person. Um, we've been Facebook friends for a little while, but I recently managed to listen to her book on Audible. And you're listening to a podcast, so you like listening stuff, you can check it out on Audible after this episode. But I would like to introduce you to the fabulous Kim Brophy. Kim, hello! Hi, thank you so much for inviting me. Oh my God, thank you so much for joining me. Honestly, when I sent you the message asking you on and you said yes, I had a proper fangirl moment. <laughs> <laughs> I did actually do a little squeal when you came on. I was like, yes, this is exciting. So for people who don't know you and aren't familiar with your work, who are you? What do you do? Well, I am the complete and total dog nerd, Kim Brophy, um, an applied ethologist, which is a super nerdy term about a super nerdy discipline of the integrated canine science discipline of applied ethology. And what that is, is it's a very small field. It's actually much larger, your side of the pond than ours um, here. It's basically non-existent, but um, it's this particular field that focuses on the relationship between human and animal behavior in captive and domesticated species and all of the variables that go into the behavior, looking at it from kind of that ethological lens in terms of like, what was the species original design and phenotype in the first place? And then how does that fit or not with the conditions that we're putting them in, in farms and zoos and uh, laboratories, and then the least considered being companion animal homes, because we don't generally think that there's welfare issues there. So um, I'm a behavior consultant in practice, but um, the, the bigger kind of mission underneath all of that, working with families one-on-one uh, -on -one over the years, um, has been to continue to raise the level of education in the public concept of pet dogs. Yeah. So you wrote a book, you did a thing and wrote a book, um, yeah. which as I've said, is on Audible now. What is the book? What was the inspiration behind the book? First of all, tell everyone what the book is called and then where sure. you inspired for it. So the book is Meet Your Dog, The Game-Changing Guide to Understanding Your Dog's Behavior. And it's the official dog legs guide. And we'll talk more about legs at some point, I'm sure in a minute here. But um, 
So the, the inspiration for me to write a book, besides it just being one of those random things on my bucket list, um, was that I felt uh, increasingly, the, the more that I learned and continued to research, because I'm a constant researcher and I just can't learn enough. So like, you know, the beginning of my career, when I came out of college, I just kept educating myself, doing more research in a lot of various related behavioral sciences, particularly the natural sciences. Mm -hmm. Um, And the more that I found and the more that I appreciated was all relevant to all organism and animals behavior, frankly, um, and also therefore dogs. I was concerned that none of this information was reaching the public and not even our industry, frankly. Mm -hmm. And so what was happening, which often does happen, I think in academia is that academics tend to have their own language and they have like their own kind of rigid, almost elite, um, insulated kind of culture around the particulars of their scientific discipline so that if you don't read or understand the talk that's being taught in that particular scientific discipline, it's going to be really hard for someone to extrapolate the meaning of the information Mm -hmm. in, in that research. And um, so I I saw that that was kind of happening across the board, that basically there was all this amazing information that was um, very well established. And it was just remaining in academia. It just wasn't reaching the dog world, uh, even though it was highly relevant to everything that we're doing and dog behavior on the whole. So um, I set about a process of distilling and then packaging that scope of information for the industry and then the pet loving public. Yeah. And I think that is a really good point because, um, you know, even going to like conferences and stuff like that, when we get into like the real kind of the geeky stuff, the behavior stuff, there have been times at conferences, you know, I've been in the industry a decade now and I understand, you know, the basics of learning science and stuff like that. I'm not a bloody neurologist. I'm learning about how brains work and all of that stuff. But there have been times where we've been sat there and I'm listening to a talk and my brain's just going, I think I understand, but I'm not sure. I mean, a prime example, I remember one talk we were at, they were discussing um, respondent conditioning. And my brain was like, this sounds familiar, but I don't understand. And it wasn't till after the whole talk had finished, I went, oh, classical conditioning, okay. And it's right. because I'd been taught it a certain way. Yeah. And I knew it a certain way. And because one of the words had changed, my brain just went, yeah. no, I don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's a huge obstacle because the terminology does get in our way. And frankly, I think that the dog behavior industry in the last 10 years has gotten really, really stuck in a certain language. And Mm -hmm. these are the terms that you use and everything else isn't legitimate. And so, um, there's, there's also been this sense of like, uh, I don't know, like not elitism, but like a, um, kind of restrictive conversation, like within the world of basically behaviorism, that was the language that in the last decade we've been taught we're supposed to be using and that's it. But there's so many other sciences that absolutely shed light on and contribute, you know, to our understandings of canine behavior that we just haven't really woven in. And, you know, it's funny that you're talking about that with conferences and stuff. And like, I had so many experiences early on in my career too, where I would go to conferences and they would have the science tracks and they would have 
so-and-so presenting on, you know, the neurology of stress or so-and-so presenting on, um, you know, the evolutionary biology of world and village dogs or whatever. But these, a lot of these people actually don't work with dog behavior in the public. Mm -hmm. So what I realized was a lot of the academics don't even have an appreciation because how would they of for the implications of their research. So they do the research, they know the things, Mm -hmm. but they, they aren't even in a position to explain to us what that means. Like, and okay. So when we're looking at the dog and we're working with the behavior in that particular set of circumstances, how do I understand what is happening from that scientific lens? So in my own journey to figure out how to connect those dots and integrate everything that I was learning, I was like, the more I, I just got chills, the more that I had the realizations and those like, oh my God, I get it. I get it. Moments where I got so excited because it was like the science finally was showing up in my work and it clicked for me. I was like, I have to share this. And so it came from a place of authentic passion Mm -hmm. curiosity that maintained, you know, being unbridled throughout my career. So it was just never enough. I wanted to know more. I wanted to know all the things. Um, and then I wanted to share all the things, you know, because there's so much good stuff already out there. It's not even that, yes, we can do more canine research and science of behavior, um, on the science of behavior, but in a way we already have tons that nobody even knows about not just in a way, in a big way. Yeah. 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 And I think as well, like with the, with the industry there is there is this real thing isn't there that like behaviorists do the kind of have that more academic route whereas trainers have the more practical route and of course there's going to be a crossover on stuff but there's also going to be cases where behaviorists could actually do with referring to a trainer that has more mm-hmm. practical knowledge but the flip side of that is sometimes a trainer needs to speak to a behaviorist that has more academic knowledge depending mm-hmm. on the dog in front of them because it's not even oh well it's this type of dog so you need to train this way it's every dog is an individual and that Mm -hmm. was the other thing I loved about your book was the way you've separated the dogs into their groups it's not just your show breed groups Mm -hmm. it's I mean the village dog group and the world dog as you referred to it I was like yes we see this you know we get a lot of European like street dogs coming over rescue dogs and stuff and I was like yeah I've met these dogs and I didn't know what category they fell into Mm -hmm. and all of a sudden it's given me an answer but from my own point of view like reading the bit about like the pastoral group our herders like I swear you've met Dodge and you just (laughs) wrote a chapter about Dodge because I was like (laughs) Oh shit, yeah, no, he does this. Okay, good. It's not just me. Because there are times where, especially as a trainer, when you've got a dog that's a challenge, and most trainers end up with the challenging dogs because we have the skill set to deal with them. Mm-hmm. But there are times where you can feel really freaking lonely. And yeah. almost this is when imposter syndrome kicks in because you're like, yeah. hang on, I'm meant to be qualified, but I'm now like questioning my life choices and my ability because yeah. my dog's being a dick today. Yeah. But reading it just it was at a time where I was like, yeah, I needed to hear that today. And actually, thank you for like writing it the way you did, because I don't always want to read the academic stuff. Sometimes I just want the information. I don't need all the fancy shit. I just need to know what I need to know. Right. 
Right, right. And the thing is, is that like, we've been like conditioned as dog behavior professionals, as trainers, right? That we're supposed to like adopt this weird, like omnipresent God complex. Like it's all how you raise them. And oh yes, I can, I can make that dog do that and make that dog stop doing that. And, you know, it's like, it's kind of like in our subconscious, we've gotten a little um, drunk with the power of our ability to modify behavior in general, because we've cracked that code of like how to train animals. Mm -hmm. And so because we can do so many amazing things, then when we can't do something, when we run into a wall or something's not working, we're like, oh my gosh, what am I doing wrong? Cause it's all how you raise them, right? Like they're, they're all the same. So if I, if I was good at what I was doing, I would be able to do this. And so much of what we're running into is just the phenotype of the animal, the literal like genetics of the animal. And then as those genetics are interacting with that animal's environment, forget the learning part, right? Now we're getting into the leg stuff, but with the learning environment, genetics and self, those four pieces of the legs, as an industry, we've spent forever looking at learning and then a little bit on the self. So learning what those experiences and education are, and then the self, what are those internal conditions? So we'll look at diet, we'll look at health, we'll look at medication, stuff like that, age, mm -hmm. neutering, whatever. But then we just kind of left out the E and the G, the middle part. And actually in nature, it's the, it's the more critical piece because it's the stuff that is kind of pervading and operating in this like relationship through generations because you have the ecosystem like the lock to the key of the organism, the niche. And then they're supposed to work together really cooperatively through in nature, what would be natural selection. But when we started breeding dogs, we made all these like really particular keys for really particular locks, most of which we don't have anymore, most of which we don't even desire in our pet dog's behavior, but we're still manufacturing all those keys. So the dogs come into these world or our world, our pet modern world, and they're having so much dysfunction and frustration that we experience. And we're like, what's wrong with you or what's wrong with me? Not, oh, yes. I understand, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Like completely. And it does become that hot. I love that analogy of locks and keys and the fact that <laughs> we're still manufacturing keys that we don't freaking need because the locks aren't there anymore. Like right. that is the best way of explaining it because a lot of these like I've just done the episode with um, Jemima Harrison and we were talking all about breeding in that. And, you know, the fact is there are shit breeders that don't care and they're just pumping dogs out for money. Um, yep. That that happens stateside and UK. Like that's a worldwide problem. We know it is. The mm -hmm. pandemic did not help this issue. Mm -mm. But the more we look at breeding for temperament over type i think is so important because especially she was looking at it from the showing point of view but we're getting these dogs because we like the way they look or we kind of like the idea of what they do but then when they actually do what they were bred to do we go oh my god like i my little terrier bless him god rest little tizer miss that dog so much i would never have a terrier again <laughs> like, yeah he was just a little shit <laughs> <laughs> he was brilliant so we think he was he was a rehome we think he was like jack russell patterdale cross oh wow uh, he was very much a yard dog he used to come to work with me at the stables when i could and he was a good little ratter and stuff but once we took him kind of out of that yard environment and just wanted him to just be a dog in the world yet yeah, no not so much 
Mm-mm. Mm-mm. And, you know, we forget that, that like most dogs weren't bred to be pets. And yet 99% of the environments we have available to put them in our pet environments. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it, it's kind of like everyone just is continuing this lie. Like we just all keep entertaining this myth. And that's kind of what we're trying to do with the whole movement with the legs initiative is to like pull the curtain back and be like, why don't we talk about the truth? Why don't we stop spinning these myths together? Like as professionals, let's stop saying, yes, I'm God, I can fix everything. And then as, as the public, let's realize, oh my gosh, like let's remember our history. Like as a, as a humanity, we've had dogs with us for thousands of years doing all these amazing jobs. And now we're just like, they're just pets. And basically people want like stuffed animals that are affectionate that they can turn on when they want and turn off when they don't. Yes. And, and like, they forget the sentience and the, you know, the necessary autonomy of that being that they're literally sharing their life with. They forget that we have very recent captivity, uh, environmental restrictions that weren't here 30 years ago. Like literally dogs were running loose in major cities in the United States when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. In our lifetime, the way dogs have been raised and bred and everything else has changed so drastically I think especially in the last I'm gonna say 20 years yep like it's just something happened and the lifestyle that we that we give these dogs now you know yes they're pampered and they're fur babies and all the rest of it but sometimes we're forgetting what they actually need you know majority of dogs I usually say to my owners um in training classes that you guys are pretty much going to want your dogs to do not a lot for about 22 hours of the day yeah right which for some breeds is cool you know like your mastiffs and stuff like that they'll be like yeah that's cool I'll just sneeze here you know your sight hounds that are up for a sprint and then chill for the rest of the day yeah perfect pets they're just sofa ornaments that run for half an hour and then they go and sleep again mm-hmm. but when we look at these other brit you know your pastorals your terriers your gun dogs and we mm-hmm. say to them right 22 hours a day you need to do nothing they go whoa no hang on a minute that's not in my contract that that's not what we were meant to be doing i thought yeah. we signed up for adventures which at the weekend might happen but what do you do monday to friday you know what it reminds me of because we think like, like you're saying they're cushy. They have all these spoils and all these luxuries and there are fur babies. It reminds me of like, how would we feel if we got stuck on a cruise ship? I mean, who doesn't like a cruise? They got the best food. You got like all this luxury stuff. You got passive entertainment. You've got, you know, all of your linens changed out every day, you know, spas, the whole nine yards. But if you were one of the people who got stuck on the darn cruise ship during the COVID outbreak at the beginning of the pandemic, and you could not get off that cruise ship for weeks on end, you'd be ready to kill somebody in a matter of days, right? So like once it's like, wait, 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 I don't have control anymore. I don't have a say so. I don't have autonomy. You won't let me leave. I can't get my feet on the earth and just follow my instincts and my impulses moment to moment. And like, gosh, do we take that for granted that we have the ability to do that? And gosh, do we take for granted that we've taken that from dogs just in the last couple of decades? And it's a mental health issue. And it's, it's a phenomenon that's widely uh, observed and documented and researched in other species called zoocosis, basically, that we just have said, oh, that doesn't apply to our dogs, because our dogs have a, you know, perfect quality of life, they have perfect happiness, because we've met all of their basic needs. 
except we forgot about that fifth freedom about the opportunity to express natural behavior being relevant for sanity. Yeah, no, massively. And I think as well, being like kind of post pandemic um, or as post pandemic as we're going to be at the moment, it's when I don't know about the US, but I know you guys went into lockdown kind of similar time as us. And there were a lot of people that were not happy about being put in a lockdown. Mm-hmm. because it went against their their human rights but yeah we are doing that to our dogs and it is crazy isn't it because there are so many people that are like that won't go to zoos because they don't like the idea of a zoo you know personally I prefer like safari parks or like zoos where they have like bigger enclosures and more enrichment and all mm-hmm. that stuff rather than like you know the old style zoos where it was basically a concrete pit with some twigs in it um But it is crazy that you've said that because I've never thought of it that way before, but we know that zoo animals suffer. And I mean, we can also, it's a slight digression, but like cats, you know, there are so many people that like, oh, you know, cats have to go out. You can't keep your cats indoors. Now there's a large percentage of cats in the UK and I'm sure the same is in the US now that are house cats. They're not going out to kill wildlife. Mm-hmm. Sorry if that pissed anyone off, but it's a fact. They kill wildlife. They're mm-hmm. me. Um, my my little wren went missing from my garden. I'm still not forgiving the local cat for that because it really upset me. Mm-hmm. Um, but people have this whole like, oh my god, you shouldn't keep cats in blah blah. Well, if they've got a cool run and they've got enrichment stuff to do, I I don't see why they can't. You know. But then if dogs are only allowed to be exercised when they're walked they're not given any enrichment they're not given any access to anything else apart from their comfy sofa and their luxury dog food that is potentially detrimental to their well-being isn't it yeah and i think the thing that makes dogs more complicated in some ways is like they were they yes they're domesticated species right so some people think about it like it's not the same as zoos because they're domesticated. Okay. So, um, then they, because they're domesticated, they don't, they're not wild. So they don't need to do the things that an animal would need to do at the zoo or whatever, but domestication in itself is really a particular selection against fearfulness of an aggression towards people, as well as conspecifics and higher populations and smaller geographic areas. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it doesn't just negate instincts okay and i think that's something we don't think about so like there's breed groups of dogs like the toy group for for instance that was particularly artificially selected for largely indoor companionship Mm -hmm. but most breeds of dogs even though they were domesticated so that temperamentally we could work with them without getting our arm chewed off by a wild animal um they still then were further artificially selected to perform even more exaggerated instinctual behaviors, uh, impulses, modal action patterns um, for hunting, for herding, um, for uh, varmint control in the case of terriers, where we wanted these dogs to be able to work actually in some cases 10, 12, 14, 16 hour days on a farm. Um, And so in that particular case, then what we often ran into was that, you know, we were creating more and more specialized keys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think as well, like, you know, as I see a real difference kind of in dogs that have been bred for sport in particular, rather than um, like working not necessarily doing a job. I'm going to use border collies because this is a really good example. So you have 
border collies that are bred to actually herd sheep and do the job of working livestock. Then you have sport bred collies that maybe have come from lines that do working trials or agility or you know obedience and the working collies are going to be different to the sport collies that are going to be different to the show collies mm -hmm. and when you then start kind of looking at the drive of them and people then getting them as pets you know the show lines may be a bit less kind of energetic than say your farm bred collie Mm -hmm. But they're still going to need that outlet. You know, they're mm -hmm. still going to need to express their ways. And it's why um, one of the um, one of the training groups I'm in today, they were like, guys, guess what the people have called me in for? The dogs are hunt away cross collie. Guess what the problem is? And straight away, I was like barking. <laughs> and someone else put car chasing. Someone else put herding the children. And right. they put, ding, 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 you're all winners. I'm yeah. <laughs> But you've bought a dog that, especially when you've added the hunterway, and for people that aren't familiar with the hunterways, they're gobby. They're bred to shout. They move cows by shouting at them. That's mm -hmm. what they do. Mm -hmm. So if you then bring that into an urban environment and expect it to be quiet, what <laughs> can happen? That's not a thing. Like, yeah. yeah, and that's the thing. See, one of the main selective pressures was barking, right? So whether that's um, you know, uh, as you say, like herding dogs, hound dogs, um, because we bred for the bay when they would, you know, I found it, I found it <laughs> so that the hunters would know long before we had GPS tracking collars where on earth their dogs went. <laughs> like that's how they, they tracked them was they just yeah. tracked the sound, you know? So like so many of the behaviors, like are so many of the dogs that we have in the population were bred for these really exaggerated behaviors like that that now I think this is kind of criminal. Like if you step back and you look at it, we artificially selected them for behaviors they never asked for that weren't functional for them adaptively in the first place, probably arguably just neurotic and excessive in general and nature would have selected against it if had it been for natural selection. We further intensified it, then we maintained it. Now we punish them for the same stuff that we bred into them that they never wanted that wasn't good for them in the first place. It just makes me crazy. It's like, how is that ethical? Yep, exactly. But that's where I think there's been this real shift in society, hasn't there? Especially, and we are going to, I'm using 30 years as that block because I remember dogs when I was younger, like when I was kind of growing up, is very different now to what we expect of dogs oh, nowadays yeah. kind of thing. Um, I just did an episode with Sarah Roper and we were talking about Datsuns and she was saying most people think Datsuns are a toy breed. And then, <laughs> <laughs> I find out they're not a toy breed. No. Um, I realized that the reason they are so barky is because when they're underground, you can hear them. They were bred to have a massive chest to be louder so that the people could hear them when they were under the ground having a row with a badger. And mm -hmm. you're like, and then one of the main things you're gonna get when people get Datsuns as pets is, oh, but they bark. And you're like, <laughs> no shit, Sherlock, of right. course. <laughs> it just baffles me how people are going for dogs purely on the look and the, like oh my god isn't it pretty isn't it cute isn't it this isn't it that rather than going right what was this actually bred for you know because it makes a massive difference i'm very fortunate with dodge that 
he's generally quite quiet unless someone kind of comes to the house or there is some or he goes into sheriff duty um he's generally quite quiet in general he's not a massively barky dog my chihuahuas on the other hand will Mm -hmm. shout at whatever they feel like because unfortunately that is a trait that I don't think has necessarily been bred into them deliberately but we're finding more and more nervy dogs that are very very vocal just because again temperament hasn't been considered in the breeding Mm -hmm. and when you then add the nature as well of what they were originally bred for you know chihuahuas are a toy breed unless you follow the whole disney route that they pass messages through the mayan temples which <laughs> i'm not gonna lie i like that story a little bit but I don't yeah yeah, yeah right um, beverly hills chihuahua was cute if not completely and totally incorrect but it was still funny i'm just gonna say it's one of our favorite films yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i've probably watched it like several times with the girls and we sat there and all watched the trials together and it was a lovely time oh yeah but this is where Disney has a lot to answer for. You know, as a dog trainer, part of my brain, I know that they were not messengers in temples. But part of my brain goes, oh, but what if they were? Wouldn't it be really cute? Yeah, right. I know. And I'm a trained bloody professional. I should know better. <laughs> well, but this, okay, so Disney does get a little bit of the blame for sure. and But then we get some of the blame collectively in the pet industry, right? And I do think that dog trainers on the whole have done a lot to make things worse because this whole idea of when we're marketing our services, we're supposed to project ourselves as competent in this and this and this and this, and I can do this and I can do this and I can make your dog do this and I can help you with this and this and this. Mm -hmm. And then dog trainers compete with each other to better brag and better, you know, assert their competency across a spectrum of canine behavior problems. And so the marketing is this like diluting, like unrealistic, um, delusional, frankly, kind of narrative about this kind of God complex of like master, and, and dog, right? Like master and the hound that like, this is our role and our dominion. And literally the entire species of a dog was put here for us to control and manipulate and direct. And they want nothing more than to follow our every command. And like, it's, it's really so complicated, frankly, the history of the human dog relationship anyway, in terms of our psychology from like religious implications of like feeling like we do have dominion over all the animals. And then, you know, dogs became through domestication, something we could have even more control over um, because of this cooperative evolutionary romance that we've shared with them that was mutually beneficial. And it was really easy, I think, for it to get to our head, especially as we got better and better at changing behavior, which frankly, The sad truth of it is, is that like, I hate to say this out loud to a group of dog trainers, but like, it's true. It's really easy to train dogs. It's really easy to change behavior. Like, but you can't always change the things you want to change. But like, we get so impressed with ourselves because we can get dogs to do all sorts of really weird things. And we're like, that's amazing. (laughs) But it's, it's really not like changing behavior. There's a code to it, right? That's applied behavior analysis. Like there is a science to how to condition behavior in humans and animals. Frankly, the marketing industry and humanity is completely cracked it too. That's why we're all conditioned to think and feel all sorts of things that we didn't agree to think and feel. So because it got cracked through the behaviorism lens, we, we do, we get kind of carried away with that. And then we think I can do anything. And then we start acting like, 
all of natural law, all of natural principles, these kind of cornerstone evolutionary biological principles don't apply to dogs. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we're, the rubber's meeting the road for us now. It's kind of like nature's calling our bluff. Dogs are calling our bluff. You know, uh, we reached the ceiling of our own bullshit <laughs> kind yeah, of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, like you know? I think this also goes back to what we were saying at the very start of the episode about language and the way we use phrases and stuff. Like one of my things, I hate the, I hate the word command. Like it's mm -hmm. a freaking cue. <clears throat> But when we look back to kind of when people started doing more dog training, especially, and this will go back to like the 70s and 80s when mm -hmm. like young'uns, when we were young'uns, um, Barbara Woodhouse was probably the most predominant trainer. Okay, you know her as well. Okay. Yep, yep. Um, you know, <clears throat> with the sit and it was the commands and the check chains and you yank your dog and all the rest of it. And the thing is, at that point, dogs were still doing functional jobs. Yeah. So actually, they needed to listen to what they were being told because it could be a life or death situation. They had to listen <clears> to <throat> commands because, especially, I mean, not so much over here because we don't really have any apex predators. But in the US, if you've got hunting dogs going out there and you realize there's a bear, your dog needs to come back to you away from the bear because you don't want your dog taking a bear on on its own. It's not going to end well. I think that's where there's kind of this hang up and obviously all the, the misinformation that got muddled up with poor Dr. Meech that did a perfectly kind of, it was a flawed study, but he thought he was doing good science and then went, oh, actually, no, that was bad science. I take it back. And everyone went, but he said alpha. And when you talk to kind of people that are in the zoological side of things, like, dominance is a perfectly normal part of a conversation for them but when you say the d word <laughs> to dog trainers like there are swear words i prefer to say over the d words <laughs> because i'm like oh no don't say that word because it's become this really flawed twisted mm -hmm. you have to be the leader bullshit that just i'm not a dog therefore i can't be the fucking leader because i'm not a dog no, I mean, and actually, I think like if we're really going to look at it practically, like, yes, the dogs know that we're not dogs, just like a lizard knows I'm not a lizard and a bird knows I'm not a bird like that. And they're not a, some dumb animal that just like is like, oh, you actually are kind of like a wolf or a dog or something. So like the whole pack theory kind of approach is it's erroneous. It doesn't fit. Mm. Frankly, it's kind of like if we found ourselves in a situation where we were completely dependent on an individual or individuals who controlled all of the resources, had all of the information, had all of the intel. So it's almost like a, an upper management slash tour guide slash like um, army general kind of thing where it's like, you know, they are dependent because we're keeping them captive. They're totally clueless, can't make their own decisions, like not clueless in general, but like clueless about what's happening, like in our modern world. Like, why did you leave, you know, an hour earlier this morning in a tizzy rather than at the time you normally leave? And why did we not have our walk? And oh my gosh, what's happening? You seem really stressed. You smell like something's really wrong. Um, and who's this random person who just, you know, came over um, and brought in this 
this big bag of stuff and are they a threat to our household because they sure were carrying something really big and smelled like a whole lot of testosterone and like i just there's so much that they're trying to process and that doesn't even account for the modern world stuff about like televisions computers like cell phones airplanes helicopters cars like skyscrapers like all these things that are completely normal in our world that our dogs are like what the actual heck is that like, I, I don't understand. I have no like evolutionary ethological point of reference for that. And frankly, a lot of humans don't either from an evolutionary perspective, which is partly why our nervous systems are so jacked up, but we can at least have a rational explanation that someone feeds us mm-hmm. to our frontal lobe intellectual processing where we can go, oh, that's a segue, not a floating human being, right? <laughs> As opposed to yeah. like, the dog is like, why is the human floating? Like, yeah. and so- For them, so much of what they're trying to process is so outside the realm of their comprehension. And then they're captive and they can't operate on those conditions in a way to kind of figure it out on their own anyway. Mm -hmm. So they are dependent on us. And so like, I do see us as responsible for guiding them, giving them answers to their questions, showing them what tools are going to be effective in the environment that they found themselves in, right? Showing them what's going to work and what's not going to work. But it's like, it's, it's more like parenting. I don't like the kind of fur babies thing, but it's like, it is closer to parenting than a lot of other models because children are dependents. And so like, I think intuitively it makes a little more sense behaviorally for us than some of the mm-hmm. other stuff, but the whole, like, put them in their place, dominate them. I mean, frankly, we just have such a cultural misunderstanding of what dominance even is and what it means in animal kingdom for social mm-hmm. adaptation and yes. survival. But, you know, that's a long story, big can of worms kind of thing. <laughs> yeah. Let's, let's not, delve <laughs> let's not go there. Yeah. Um, and if people do want to know a bit more about that, our sister podcast, Dog Train Dictionary, we did a whole episode on dominance theory like we picked it out and all the bones and everything so if you want to know more about that check out the dog train dictionary but we are not dealing with that shit today yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's not for this episode so let's talk about legs because when when I was listening to the book when this came back and you were like right we're going to look at from these four different parts and it's called legs and it's and I'll let you explain it properly because I don't want to butcher it. But it was like this little light bulb went off from my head and I went, well, duh, why would we not do this before? Like, it was like a Homer Simpson dope moment where just, it was so freaking obvious, but it was new as well. And I was like, oh, shiny thing that makes sense. Mm-hmm. That's how I felt. I was like, oh my God, all of this, I'm obsessed. Like literally I I was going to training that day and all my clients, I was like, guys, this book, you have to read it or listen to it because it's awesome. They were like, oh, but is it a trainer book? I was like, no, it's for trainers and pet parents and anyone that has a dog needs to read this Mm -hmm. book or listen (laughs) to it because mind blown, (laughs) amazing, epic. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So what is legs? Well, it's funny because what you're describing about the experience you had in finding it is the same experience that I had in finding all the information that made me, as I said earlier, so excited to share it, right? Because it was like, oh, wait, 
this is nature's system. Like, I, I mean, I made up the acronym for legs, right. Just to kind of make it like user-friendly, but yeah. like, this is nature's orchestra of variables. It's that mm -hmm. concept of a phenotype, which is, you know, we think we thought about it a lot of different ways over the years, nature and nurture is one way to think about it, but nature and nurture doesn't give us quite enough information. In my opinion, I like legs better because it's more concrete. Like remember to look under these four rocks of learning. So the individuals, you know, from the time they're born, their experiences and education in life, what does that look like? And it's not just training. It's literally 24 seven, all the little things that they're putting together. This means this, if I do this, this works. If I do this, it doesn't work all that good stuff that we're all doing. Yep. And then the environment. So that the external conditions for that animal, um, which also then refers back to the original environment in nature that that animal evolved in. So that gets a little sticky with dogs. Um, and then the genetics. So that being the lock of the environment. So that key of the genetics, which is how nature's whole system works to create keys as perfectly suited keys to the lock of the niche in the ecosystem. So it doesn't, nature doesn't make keys that don't fit. Humans do, but nature doesn't. So there's learning environment, genetics, and self, the last piece, which is the internal conditions of the individual, unique personality, um, sex, age, health, disease, disability, nutrition, all that good stuff, mm -hmm. um, medications, et cetera. And so for any organism on the planet, they inherit those genes from the time they're born, finding themselves in the environment that their ancestors evolved in, then they're learning on their own how to adapt better to those environmental conditions as an individual through the course of their life. And so like, you can't get away from any one of those four parts, right? For, and that's literally true for every single species on the planet. Every species has legs, so do we. And so the idea of using legs to think about our dog behavior is basically just saying we should apply what we already have been given by all of these scientists for decades who have put all of these pieces together for us. And they already know that this is a truism across the entire natural world. Why would dogs be the exception for that? The problem has been, I think, is that there's no kind of common popular knowledge of a phenotype. So when you're trying to be, I mean, and maybe that's because most people just aren't that interested in wild animal behavior. I don't know why that is, but either way, that was one of those things that was largely academic. So can so, we just explain what a phenotype is? Because yep. it's the word that I've heard, but I'm honestly, I'm not hundred percent familiar with it. And I'm sure that other people listening might not be. And if you do tough, I want to know what this word means. <laughs> So, I mean, the way I think about a phenotype literally is like, so phenotype um, is the word that describes the organism's genotype in interaction with the environmental conditions, okay. including the products of their behavior. So it really references that close interaction. So they might use things in the environment, for instance, to create a nest, or they might be exploiting another species um, and say commensalism or something like that, where they're, you know, benefiting from another animal, um, or maybe they're in a mutually beneficial relationship with another species. Um, and it has to do with everything from the climate and the geography. It's all of the variables that go into that animal's behavior in the context of the environment through the ontogeny, so the development over the course of that animal's life, and whether that animal has a disease, has a mutation, has a disability, whether they're an intact, you know, um, in heat female, whatever. So it's a phenotype is actually not a static term either. You can't say, you know, this is like 
this animal's phenotype forever more right now because its phenotype will be a little bit different in a couple of years once it reaches sexual maturity. So it, it asks us to stay dynamic in our assessment mm-hmm. and our understanding of that whole picture of the animal's nature plus nurture legs. Because it's always fluid. It's not just black and white. It's not just this is this and that is that. It's And the thing is, you know, when we look at how our dogs develop, um, I'm I'm on the I'm on the flip side of adolescence thank you. <laughs> because I tell you that's been a whole thing and anyone that says adolescence lasts to 18 months is a freaking liar because I had another year of it afterwards <laughs> like there is this whole thing is it oh it starts at six months and they're finished at 18 months no that's a load of bullshit okay it started at about six months and then got progressively worse and then at two I'm thinking come on have we finished yet yeah. And I then had another eight months of it until I've gone, I, I think we might be clear, but I'm not holding my breath until he's at least three. Right. <laughs> right. And, and, fluid. It, and, and that's just so important, right? So if we're talking about the behavior of an organism, like if we were talking about genotype, a genotype is more static, right? So it's like, we can say, this is the genotype of the animal. We could go one step, you know, more rigid and say it's the taxonomy, you know, of the animal. But like, so if we're talking about something that is as dynamic and organic as real life, so um, a fun little side nerd out lecture you guys should go listen to just to like really wrap your head in some like mind blowing, amazing science. Robert Sapolsky, the Stanford professor, who's just like a genius, A, his ethology lecture, but he did a lecture that someone sent to me a couple of weeks ago that just blew my mind on reductionism and chaos theory. Long story short, most of what we do in the dog world and most of the sciences is we want to put things into these static kinds of mathematical formula. Yep. ABA is a little bit guilty of that, right? So it's like we take a smaller mathematical equation. We want to make it really manageable and make sure we isolate all of our variables, you know, in the spirit of good math. Mm-hmm. But it negates the fact that anything that's organic you can't ultimately put into a reductionist framework because there's too many confounding variables. That's called life, right? And so, um, you know, one of my students is gonna be doing a little mini class presentation for us on that dogs are clouds, not clocks, because that's the analogy that Robert Sapolsky uses. Yeah, Yeah. Um, but it's, I guess I say all that because I phenotype points to that, okay? So instead of it, we could say a genotype it's not actually a clock either, but it's closer to something that has a little more predictability and a standard deviation of like what that particular um, uh, niche is. Um, And again, whether that's a naturally occurring niche or something we artificially selected for. And then um, if you're looking at the phenotype, well, it gets a lot more complicated because we have a lot more of these variables. And then something like captivity holy cow, is that a confounding variable? You know, holy cow, does that change everything? Because in nature, the individual is able to use the benefit of their genotype to operate in the environment in ways that, so G, E, and then enable them to adapt, learn, to behave differently depending on changes in those environmental conditions. So the L part, the learning part keeps them flexible. It's that constant door. Think about how most of us consider learning in our dogs. We think of it like training, like, like what we're doing to change their behavior. 
when that's not what learning's for in nature. In nature, learning is for helping you deal with your circumstances mm-hmm. functionally for your own behavioral and, and survival health. And so when you think about all of that beautiful complexity and you think about something like the interrupting factor of something like captivity, and just as you've said in the last couple of decades, how things have changed, like how could we not talk about phenotype? How can we not get good at checking all the boxes so that like in your case, you could appreciate like a big part of what you've been dealing with, with your lovely shepherd is a big S factor, like where where he was in his development and his ontogeny given his genetics, given his early environment, given his early learning, created a very complicated set of variables for you and he to have to navigate together. And then it shifts so completely once they're through sexual maturity. It's amazing, right? It's like sexual maturity, social maturity, um, you know, reproductive state, reproductive status, all of those things can be massive yeah influencers of behavior at any given time one way or another and also I think with with us kind of messing with dogs and getting involved with it also from the learning side of it the way we expect dogs to interact with each other socially is so different to how dogs would do it in the wild you know like those village dogs that you talk about in the book you know the dogs in like um so Rachel Bean we were talking about um like the Indian village dogs that are literally Mm -hmm. just there hanging out doing their things they will be in little groups and they will have their little territories but they kind of hang out and some of them want to be on their own some of them have a few friends some of them have more friends there is this real kind of thing that not only should all dogs like all dogs which is just nuts because why I don't like people but also there is this real thing as well that people feel they have the right to approach a dog and a dog should tolerate being touched um Paul who another guest did a brilliant meme on Facebook this week about how um dogs should be asked if they want to be touched and you should always check if your dog wants to be stroked and Imagine touching a dog is like touching boobies. You might like touching boobies, but you should always ask before you touch (laughs) boobies. And I was like, that's a really good way of explaining it because, you know, I found with the chihuahuas as well, their safe space is kind of in that middle peekaboo position because people are less likely to reach between your legs to touch a dog. Right. They're like next to you or if they're loose. (laughs) and when we add that into kind of when we look at it from the legs approach to maybe the more kind of traditional approach of training it just seems so bizarre that we expect dogs to be okay with that I mean in the UK we don't really have dog parks so much um Mm -hmm. we we get parks where everyone like walks and takes their dogs that I avoid like the plague but Mm -hmm. we don't tend to have like these off-leash areas where the only place the dogs can go off-lead is in this small tiny area where there's going to be dogs that really should not be in that area and really are not sociable and really are not even wanting to be there or have not been taught good manners or actually find it fun to piss off the other dogs in the dog park 
they could have even been genetically bred to engage in conflict with other animals because there's plenty of dogs that were, or in the case of herding dogs, to micromanage and be the fun police. Like there's, yeah. it's, they're almost speaking different languages. And yeah. I think your example of the village dogs is so good because that's a land race that has evolved in a given uh, geographic area where mm -hmm. the certain environmental conditions and the pressures are doing their thing with natural selection and the individuals are able to autonomously adapt to those conditions and continue to improve one generation after the next right mm -hmm. so they 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 are suited to those conditions and frankly the ones that are too aggressive aren't going to survive the ones that are too fearful aren't going to survive you know the ones with no brain cells to navigate the traffic are going to get hit and they won't survive and reproduce right so like Whereas our dogs, when we're doing all of the breeding and we're not allowing them to have the experiences that then they would pass on like epigenetically to their offspring about like how to do things better. Mm -hmm. Then what's happening is, is that we have dogs that are less and less equipped generation after generation right now to handle this modern world, which just keeps getting more difficult for them to manage in the first place. And we've handicapped nature's two mechanisms, individual autonomy for adaptation and genetic reproductive autonomy over generations to fix the problem. So we have all these super specialized keys speak, speaking totally different languages going into the dog park, as you describe. Mm -hmm. And like many of them were not bred to be completely and totally like outgoing, extroverted, super tolerant, pro-social with everybody, everything. Mm -hmm. And yet we have the same blanket expectations of behavior for every single type of dog out there. Yeah, no, massively. I remember like, um, so Munchkin, we've got a little rescue bully breed girls, little stuffy, lovely type thing. Um, she, when she was younger, she was kind of into playing with other dogs. As she started getting older, she'd just kind of say hi, have a little sniff. If they were a bit rude, she'd do a bit of a, a lip curl, a bit of a grumble. I'd then get moaned at because obviously I have a bull breed, so it's my dog's fault that it's grumbled, even though their right. dog was being completely fucking rude. Right. But it got to the point where um, I would I would mainly walk her like kind of in public areas with a friend. And it was either um, a friend of mine had um, a few Shelties and we'd go on a crazy dog walk with Shelties and Chihuahuas and bull breeds. And just, <laughs> it was loud. It was never a quiet walk. <laughs> um, and then one of my friends has um, gorgeous standard poodle who um, we call him the fabulous gay poodle because he is the socialite. <laughs> and if a dog went to come over to Munch to say hi, and she was going, mm, I actually don't want to say hi to you. Charlie would bound in and go, hi, I'm Charlie. I'm fabulous. Love me. <laughs> and would kind of divert the dog off from her. So actually their relationship with each other was brilliant because I remember the first day Charlie ever met her, he ran up to her, went to shove his nose straight into her lady parts. <laughs> she spun around and told him that that was inappropriate. And they were actually best friends after that day because mm -hmm. he went, oh sorry am I not meant to do that and she went no that was rude and he went okay I'm sorry and she went okay that's cool and they would just do sniffing together they'd run together if there was something to chase they would chase it together but that's a bull breed and a poodle that are very different mm -hmm. that actually have a lovely lovely relationship with each other and they just kind of hang out and now they're both old they don't get to hang out so much they don't do as much now but when I think about that kind of relationship and how varied the species are, on paper, those two dogs shouldn't have been really good friends, but actually in practice, they worked really well together. 
Now, Dodge at the moment, he tends to be more friends with like collies, other herding breeds. He's got a little spaniel friend and he's got a Labrador friend. And that's enough for him. He doesn't need to be meeting all the dogs because, Mm -hmm. do you know what? He's not that polite. Well, and I think like a lot of the dogs that we have were bred to be wary of other animals, like whether they, so like herding dogs are for kind of a little bit of a different reason, but but pretty much any of the pastoral breeds. So like the herding and the livestock guardian types, right. Are, we're all bred to be like, wait a minute, like that might be a potential intruder to the flock. Right. And to do something about it, to step up to different kinds of plates, to do something about it. Um, and so like, I have a livestock guardian mix. She's a Pyrenees, Newfoundland, and she's, she's like, I don't need to meet all the dogs. Like that's her personality. When she was an, a puppy, a juvenile. Oh yes. I'd like to meet the dogs. As soon as she had her first heat, she was like, I don't want to meet all the dogs anymore. I'm a lady now and things are different and everything's not fun and games. And she just got this like serious streak that kicked in. She didn't finish maturing until she was about three, similar to your boy. Mm -hmm. Um, but she, she got her as she was experiencing those emergent behaviors as Ray Coppinger, you know, um, introduced that term. I love that term emergent behaviors. Cause it just so well describes like, Oh, this little thing just shows up all of a sudden or goes away. It emerges here and it turns on and then it turns off at the relevant points in development. Um, but when you're a kid, you don't need to be protecting the social group, right. From the potential intruders. But then once you hit sexual or social maturity, depending on the type of dog, depending on the instinct you're talking about, things kind of turn on and they're like, Oh, wait a minute. All of a sudden I'm seeing that through a different lens, Mm -hmm. you know? And, and sometimes we don't accept that, right. We don't accept that G part of the legs. And even though we've still maintained the breed that we developed to be wary of other canine predators coming into the territory, we're like, that's not nice. And they're like, but wait, wait a minute. Did I thought, wait, okay, why do I have all these feelings? Like, they don't know why they have those feelings, you know? And we act like they're doing it on purpose. And then we set about using an L thing, a learning thing to try to change a G thing. And it's just not it's not functional. And actually what's really cool is when you can understand and appreciate and respect a dog's legs, you can say, okay, cool. So that's not your thing. You don't feel comfortable being as socially flexible as you did when you were a juvenile. And I'm not saying just because your dog is a Pyrenees mix, they hit sexual maturity. You stop trying socializing experiences that you've been doing that Mm -hmm. were going well. You just listen to your dog. So if your dog starts feeling differently about things, you can adjust how you help them navigate those conditions by saying things like, okay, cool. So let's make a deal then since you're really not feeling the super pro-social party vibe anymore. Mm -hmm. I will keep them out of your space if you mind your own business. How about that? Does that work? I'll protect you from the over-friendly Labrador <laughs> and I won't let him ambush you. On the labs, but we are because it's always <laughs> Who's like, oh my God, you're my best friend because everyone's my best friend. Um, and so, you know, um, it's my job then to advocate for your needs, understanding and accepting you for who you are, for the legs that you have that you didn't choose to have, you know, and then I can adjust basically your environment, including your social environment by navigating those things differently and just changing my own expectations is a big part of that process. So I think that's one of the cool things about legs is I think expectations are antecedents. They're powerful antecedents. So if we can shift the expectations of the people who are the carers 
for these dogs. Mm -hmm. And we can give them different tools that aren't necessarily dog training. Sometimes it's a matter of adopt this pattern every time you're in this particular set of circumstances. Mm -hmm. And the dog's like, whew, that's great. That totally works for me. Thank you. Yeah. You know, um, it's just such a different way of approaching dog behavior than what we've been told has been kind of our only tool in the tool basket, which is training. Even though we have a lot of tools in the training bag, we've been kind of told that training is our tool and the only one. Yeah. And I think as well, it's, it's very easy to kind of forget to look at all of it because I think more and more we're becoming aware of the self side of things. And I think Mm -hmm. there has been a massive shift in the industry towards dogs being able to um, have an amount of consent to what they're doing also about the emotional well-being of the dog Mm -hmm. also about kind of even just the understanding of things like pain which again having a dog with hip dysplasia this has been another massive thing in the reason why he was quite so dramatic in the world because not only were there hormones but there was also pain underlying yeah no wonder he was a knob really you know oh okay this is why and now we're getting in the world and cool but I think that even when I started out a decade ago the self of the dog wasn't really even a thing we Mm -hmm. didn't even kind of consider it as part of it it was to me it was about the learning and the genetics were kind of there but it was about the learning Mm -hmm. and then some of the environment kind of came in but again, it was almost like a little side sprinkle rather than like part of the main meal. It was just like a little a little sprinkling of salt rather than an actual entree. And yeah, I think with the legs thing, it's like you finally got the whole plate is there. You've got a full plate of everything, all the components you need rather than just this one piece with right. a little sad salad leaf on the side. <laughs> like a bit of seasoning if you're lucky. <sighs> Now we're like, right, we have got a full-blown cordon bleu meal that like we can get stuck into and work out why this is happening and how we can help the dogs get through it and cope. And I loved in the book that in those little breed kind of groups that you'd put together, it was like, your dog's likely to do this and your dog's likely to do that. And it's never your dog is going to because every single one of them is an individual but knowing what you're getting into prepares you for what you're getting into rather than just being like, oh, I'll get a dog. We know they're one of the most diverse species going mm-hmm. and we have to appreciate that. Yeah. For the last kind of couple of hundred years, we've really, really fucked about with them. Mm-hmm. But now we've had such a massive change in the way even home life, you know, there were much more parents at home looking after the kids rather than mm-hmm. working parents. So there'll be people at home with the dogs in the daytime. I think the whole way society has changed has meant that our dogs are struggling because mm-hmm. as you say, they don't have these genetic markers to go, okay, well, this is how we cope with this. Right. Right. We forget how that works in nature. Like we're not really taught that like as part of our elemental education, at least here in the U S that like, definitely not in the U K. Yeah. And and I wish it was more of a cornerstone for the educational system because it's the world that we live in. It's how all species operate. It's like, you should be born equipped with the literal faculties and the resources 
And the, the instruments, the perceptions, the knowledge intuitively, instinctively of how to operate in your world to a certain degree. Like you're not, it's not meant to be Groundhog Day with every generation where you're like, wait, how do you do this again? What does that mean? What am I supposed to do? Like everything shouldn't just be like we're starting over. Like it's a process of kind of, it's almost like the user manual gets updated with every generation. You know, I use that analogy in the book. And so it's like, you should be inheriting that wisdom, that evolutionary wisdom of your particular species. And now that can't work for dogs. It's not a wisdom anymore. It's like, um, it was at one point. And then I think really with the modern dog breeds, that's when we kind of lost it all together when everything became kind of like, um, artificial selection and spaying and neutering. So like, and, and again, like you referenced, I mean, the first part of my, you know, 40 some odd year life, like there were still a lot of dogs that were still mating autonomously. And I do recognize there are very real problems with not spaying and neutering. I'm not suggesting we don't have spay neuter programs. I'm just saying there's a cost to that for the gene pool. The cost is, is that animals aren't making those decisions based on the intuition and the instincts that drive those decisions of reproduction for every other species. Yeah. And that's a big deal. Like we're doing it. We're pulling all the strings, but we don't even know what we're doing. But also we're pulling strings and not thinking about it from that, the kind of ecological point of view. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, a lot of people are pulling the breeding strings just to make money. And that is not the way to do things. You know, the environment, the puppies are born in and raised, you know, we all hate fucking puppy farms. They're shit and horrible and they shouldn't be a thing. And then people wonder why they've got these spooky, Mm-hmm. Yeah, puppies and it's like well because mum's been living in a metal container with absolutely no experience so not only is mum stressed so those stress hormones are going to come through but also mum mm-hmm. hasn't had good learning experiences and good life so it's not going to pass the puppies because it just wasn't even there to start with right and and we're just learning just now about epigenetics talk about a can of worms you know like we do know that trauma can be inherited we know that food aversion can be inherited we know that stereotypies can be inherited so why would it stop there right like so maybe it leaves greater epigenetic markers and tags the bigger the experience is the more significant that is to survival that's why trauma is like the thing that is noted most consistently as like two generations ago my grandmother has a traumatic experience and now i am inexplicably scared of the thing that traumatized her that's so crazy that that happens but now we know that it does and it makes sense because evolution's efficient and that's a way more efficient way for things to evolve But then it does beg that question about like, so even take a really well-loved and like, like good, good nutrition, good medical care, et cetera, dog, say, take a working line dog living in non-working line conditions and the chronic frustration and stress, distress, dysfunction that that dog is experiencing. But because of the value of that gene pool that it came from, they keep breeding that dog, even though it's living in a crate, right? But they're breeding it because it's so valuable as a stud. But then at what point, are his damaged genes then affecting the subsequent generations of the working line dogs that come off of him? Like, we don't know. There's no actual answer to that question yet, but we have indicators that something is very much happening there, which makes me very concerned about the population of dogs in the next 10 years. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think this is where 
we need to this is where you know i will always like i i love rescue and i think rescue is an amazing thing and i i wish there was no need for rescue but unfortunately the way society is and this consumerism of dogs there is gonna be rescue you know mm-hmm. sometimes shit happens and dogs just end up not working out in the environment dodge is a great example of that but this is where if we could make people more aware of research researching the breed but also researching the breeder and looking at where your dogs come from what we require them to do and being a bit more mindful you know Jemima was saying in the last episode there are some breeds that really should should be extinct they shouldn't be anymore because of all the health issues and stuff with them but actually when we look at from that legs point of view there are breeds that kind of shouldn't be on this mortal coil anymore because we just don't have the need for them anymore right and they and they're not functioning and we don't value what they bring to the table as a matter of fact we condemn it in some cases and so we need to a part of it really is dropping breed breed standards right you take any great dog that's coping well out of any of the genetic groups and Uh you find it a find it a hot date with another dog that's coping really well in modern conditions, right? And then you let go of things like ear set and tail set and, you know, um, their their stacking and their coloration and the ridge on the ridge, you know, ridge backs and whatever. Like breed standards, in my opinion, if we are breeding for welfare and functional adaptation to our modern pet conditions need to go out the window. Mm-hmm. Unless you're breeding for that original function, yeah, maybe there's some room for it in certain small pockets of civilization these days, but frankly, not many but in my view. You know, like, um, again, talking about this in the last episode, but, you know, countries like Norway and even like Australia, mm. um, talking to Danielle, one of um, one of my Hoopers World instructors out there, she bred Doberman, she doesn't anymore, she doesn't have the stock that is correct for breeding. She had this beautiful dog that planned to be a stud dog. His confirmation's not 100%. She will not breed from that dog. His temperament is brilliant. He's a good working sport dog. But because that third part of the triangle isn't there, she will not use that dog for breeding. Mm. My vet turned around to me and said, it's a shame that Dodge has bad hips because he'd make a gorgeous stud dog. Because Mm -hmm. looks wise, he's good. And he's a bloody good sport dog. But his hips are shit. Mm -hmm. So therefore, I'm not going to put him into the gene pool. And Mm. I think that again it's is it down to the trainers is it down to the breeders is it down to the consumer i think just society as a whole needs to be mm-hmm. more aware of how much we are fucking around with these animals right no i completely agree i think it's across the board i think if we just kind of hit one nail without hitting the other ones we're going to have a pop-up board right like yeah, we have yeah. to be able to like you know get a nice level solution here that checks all the boxes because the public creates the demand for the products of the dogs. Yeah. The breeders fill the demand mm-hmm. and the trainers endorse both ends of that yeah. one way or another, you yep. know, in, in what we're doing. Um, and so collectively, I think we have to just continue as a culture and as an industry to have a new, higher level, more expansive conversation about the current predicament. Yeah. And then we need to challenge ourselves to let go of certain sacred cows, whether that's a particular breed standard or whether that's, you know, a certain attitude or perception that we culturally have about something. Just, we have to be willing to be like, okay, hold on. Like, let's take a step back. Let's reassess the entire picture 
through legs, you know, or something similar. I'm not even like married to people loving the model that I came up with. I just want people to understand the importance of the scope of the information. But I think that the the leg structure is so good because it can be applied to all species. You know, mm-hmm. I can apply it to cats. We can apply it to horses. We can apply it to not even just domesticated animals, you know. Right. But the thing is, when we look at, and I'm not talking about captive animals, but as you say, in the wild, in nature, when people are not around with this stuff, it's it just happens naturally. It's how things should be. And natural selection really is a thing. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, <laughs> we, we often joke when things happen, you're like, should those people breed? Like, should we really, like, should we put a breed, like, should we work out some breeding programs for the peoples as well? <laughs> you do question sometimes, like, people having children, you're like, hmm, should they now? But again, <laughs> this is where natural selection has kind of been taken out of people because we have got this whole ego that we are the dominant species. We are yeah. we are the most important, the most successful. We are the apex freaking beings in the universe. But we're getting time- we're gonna about we're gonna get humbled. Our egos are about to get checked, right? By like what the environment is doing, weather patterns. Like, I mean, at the end of the day, nature's gonna like nature has its system. We think we're conquering it. We're not. We're basically nature screwing ourselves slowly. A couple of years ago, didn't she? And went, hey, I can yeah. all up. That's that's right. Basically, because we're just acting like you said, like, oh, we we can do this and we can manipulate this. And oh, we've we've fixed the whole like thing with natural selection, with modern medicine and all that. It's not like I'm against modern medicine. It's not like, you know, I'm against everything that we've done, but we go unchecked. We don't recognize the problems with the good things like everything. um, Embracing contradictions is part of understanding nature do you know that things can really be like that's really good except it could also be really bad if we're not careful you know um and it's kind of true with dogs it's true with us it's true with the environment it's true with society everything and so i think it's a matter of just getting humble enough to really look and realize that like things are catching up with us human beings yeah. kind of across the board yeah um we've gotten too big for our little britches yeah. <laughs> and yeah. um and now it's like oh okay it's just it's almost like watching a slow tra- train wreck right but then in my opinion even though like we may not be able to stop some of these slow train wrecks mm-hmm. i'm not going to stop trying and from my little corner of the world loving dogs loving people loving nature as i do i want to try to optimize the ability for us to survive and continue and be functional and have good welfare together what is you know one of the reasons why I do this podcast because it gives it gives me a voice but it gives other people a voice and you know we might just have a little pocket of listeners and to the listeners we love you and thank you for listening (laughs) but those are creating those little ripples and as we know the more little ripples we create that's how we make change it's how we start conversations and you don't have to agree with what someone said but to listen to what somebody's saying and go, Mm -hmm. okay, I understand where you're coming from and maybe I'll look at things slightly differently. That's Mm -hmm. how we change things. Expecting someone to just change their opinion like that because you've told them to. That's how Facebook war starts. Oh, I know. I know. That's a whole nother thing. But I think that with 
with the book and the way you've you've structured it it starts a conversation it plants the seed Mm -hmm. that makes people think and makes people kind of aware of why their dogs are maybe doing the things that are driving them insane because they didn't realize that actually 20 years ago that was a really really desirable trait but now you're living in your apartment in the middle of a built-up city having a Malamute in that house may in that area may not be the best plan <laughs> right 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 and you've just brought up a really important point too you know as we're kind of wrapping up here like mm-hmm. I think it's important to say to ourselves and to each other be nice to yourself, be nice to each other, be patient. As we try to change our own perceptions, our own attitudes, our own practices and habits, that's difficult. It's, you know, that's a, it's a struggle to move outside of our comfort zone, to look at things through a different lens. And so we need to approach this whole shift, this paradigm shift with compassion across the board, right? For everyone involved, rather than let's just use this as another reason to be mean to each other online, right? Mm -hmm. And to condemn some people for the way that they're doing things. Like, you know, pointing fingers is gonna be futile in this whole movement. And like, it's we're just at the beginning and it's gonna take a cooperative collection of committed individuals to continue to find what the possible solutions might be. I'm basically starting a conversation. Some people have said like, Kim, you've presented all of these problems. What are the solutions? I'm like, I don't, I will tell you right now. I don't have all the answers. I don't know. Help me figure it out. Like, let's do it together as, as a community, you know? Um, so for anyone who's really interested to, I would welcome them to take the full legs course because it is like a hyper expanded version of the book and this conversation and everything with all the little nitty gritty details in there for those who really want to know all the things about what we're talking about. Yeah, exactly that. So if people want to, so the book is available online. You can get it on Audible to listen to. That's where I found it. And then you can buy, is it better for people to buy it through your website? Do you get more money? No, it's actually, it's on Amazon and basically wherever books are sold. However, it has been sold out for a number of months now and is currently going for criminal prices on Amazon, like over a hundred dollars. Um, but the second edition is going to be out in May. So for anyone who wants a hard copy, just be a little patient and you can well, get one of these. This episode new- will be July. So hopefully. Oh, perfect. They should be able to get them then. That's right. Yay. Okay. Yeah. So in, in the current time of recording, it's hard to get hold of, but in the future, when you're listening, yes. Hopefully you can get a copy. But yeah, honestly, guys, the audio is is really, really good. Um, did you read it yourself or you had a narrator? I can't remember. I had a narrator. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes like I'm I'm a big audiobook fan. Um, I listen to them a lot as well as podcasts. And sometimes I'm like, I've got a little series of books I like because it's the narrator I like, and I yeah. found this narrator that's really cool and that's who I stick with. And sometimes I try and listen to things and I'm like, oh, n- no. Don't like the narrative. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> nope, that's not a thing. Um, but I found the book super easy to listen to as well, which I love. So guys, if if you haven't got, if you're like me and don't have time to read or don't have the mental capacity to read, give mm. it a listen because you can digest it. It's the chapters are nice and easy. And I actually, it worked out for me. It was like a breed group a day for yeah. a week. I kind of, that's how I took it in. And it, yeah perfect way of digesting that information so thank you and if people want to find you like 
Facebook or social yep. media website? Where can they find you? I'll put the links in the show notes, but just for people to. Great. Yeah, no. So people can find me just through um, my Facebook account, Kim Brophy. You know, that's kind of my professional. I don't really have a personal, personal page. So my personal page is my professional page. Um, yeah. And then I have um, a website, the dog door, dogdoorbehaviorcenter.com or dogdoor canine services. Either one of those will bring it up. Um, and then we can also link to the course so people can learn about that as well. Yep. So guys, if you are in the industry, if you're a trainer, like honestly, check this out because it's just a different way of explaining it to your owners as well. So it does really help. So as always, guys, um, if you want to follow my dogs on social media, on Instagram, at Dodge Shepherd, at Mink Chihuahua. Um, if you want to support the podcast and buy me a coffee, buymeacoffee.com forward slash hoopers. And until next time, stay safe, be kind, wash your hands thoroughly, keep your dogs on lead around livestock and don't let them lick toads. Take care, guys. Bye. Sorry, www.caninehooperswild.com. Canine Hoopers World now has achievement awards online so anyone, anywhere can test their teamwork and get one of our beautiful rosettes. There's even one for puppies. The website will tell you more about that and Hoopers, how to find an instructor. We also offer online training. There are beginners courses, we offer online training in distance handling and there are instructor courses for dog trainers. Join us on Facebook. We have a friendly international group and follow us on Instagram at Canine Hoopers World. Canine Hoopers World, everyone's invited.